You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up, I'll be talking to BMJ.com editor David Payne about the public health and healthcare changes former US politician Kenneth Kaiser has made in the States. The other big thing I think that Kenneth did during his time there, which he talks about in, in the subsequent clip, is, you know, obviously AIDS was the first then emerging um, in California. And, uh, you know, the, the, the state again was very pioneering in needle exchange programs and, and things like that, which again, as he says, at some stages made him in fear of his job. and uh, But obviously were a template again for other public health campaigns around the country. But firstly, here's BMJ's features editor, Rebecca Coombs, who's just returned from Ghana and is finding out more about a new pneumococcal vaccine that's being rolled out in the country. I was recently in Ghana with the Gavi team to witness the country launch of of two vaccines against uh, rotavirus and pneumococcal, leading causes of of death of children under five across the world. Also with me was uh, Oren Levine, Executive Director of the International Vaccine Access Centre at the John Hopkins University in Baltimore, who joins me on the phone now. Oren, the pneumococcal vaccine rolled out in Ghana uh, this month is is much more complex than the one that was introduced in the US at the turn of the century. Why is that? That's right. The the vaccine that the kids in Ghana are getting is the most advanced pneumococcal vaccine that's ever been made. Um, It includes 13 separate pneumococcal conjugate vaccines, which include all of the really important strains of pneumococcus that cause disease around the world. And so in places like Ghana, we expect this vaccine should uh, cover 70 to 80 percent of all the disease-causing strains um, that might um, affect the children of Ghana. And can you explain why this is more necessary to have a 13-valent form in, in Ghana than a more simplified form in the U.S.? Yeah, there's just... Um, a bit more diversity of the strains that cause disease in a place like Ghana. So by adding additional serotypes, we've now been able to um, raise the likelihood that the vaccine is going to match the disease-causing serotypes in, in Ghana to a level of you know, 70, 80, maybe even 85%, um, which is the kind of coverage that we saw with, say, seven-valent vaccines in places like the U.S. And what sort of coverage is required to achieve herd immunity in a place like Ghana? We have observed herd immunity or interruptions of transmission from vaccine coverage rates in the, on the order of uh, 60 to 70 percent in places like the U.S. What we're um, watching carefully is to see whether the same level of coverage will produce the same kind of herd immunity effect in places like Ghana. And what what struck me about um, being in Ghana was that uh, the country seemed to have a good but basic health service and a decent insurance system giving 90% of people access to health services for about $10 a year and free antenatal care. Does all that that kind of stuff help when when you're trying to um, roll out a successful vaccination campaign? Yeah, it it really was um, impressive to see what Ghana's been able to do with their health and immunization program. We saw in the health centers in in Ghana uh, well-organized clinics with well-supervised and prepared people who were able to safely and effectively deliver vaccines to the kids that they were responsible for in the in the community health centers um, that where they worked. Um, I think at least as um, impressive was the the population's response to the health system and the um, 
degree to which there was um, trust in the communities for the health system. And I, I think together that is a really, you know, strong base for, for Ghana to, to launch the vaccine from. Yeah, I, mean, I was really impressed by the way Ghana sort of embraced these new vaccines because it's not that long ago that in sort of neighbouring Nigeria, um, when vaccination programmes came to a halt because of rumours that the polio vaccine caused AIDS and made young girls infertile. But Ghana doesn't seem to be wrestling with any of those problems. Well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's interesting, Rebecca, that um, there are two things that I really took away from the visit. One is, if you remember, we visited a uh, a children's hospital, and, and, and we watched a father who was sitting at the side of his son's bed, his eight-month-old son who had severe pneumonia and sadly died of that infection that night. So on the one hand, I think Ghanaian parents and communities remain heavily affected by the vaccine-preventable diseases that we're aiming to control with, with these new uh, vaccine introductions. And on the other side of it, I think the the leadership in Ghana has also recognized this. So in speaking with um, Professor Fred Binko, one of the leading public health figures in, in all of Ghana, when we asked him, you know, why did you decide to do these two, two vaccines at once? He said it was really pretty simple. We looked at the biggest causes of child death in our country. Malaria is number one, but there's no vaccine that's ready for it yet. Number two and three are pneumonia and diarrhea. So it was a pretty simple decision for us. We need those vaccines because these are the diseases that uh, kill our children. It was striking, wasn't it, at the Children's Hospital in Accra, the capital city, that the majority of patients in the emergency ward and, and on the medical wards were children with diarrhea, pneumonia um, or malaria. And talking to the nurses and to the doctors there, they said 10 years ago you would have seen a huge amount of measles cases. So I think it's uh, no deaths from measles since 2003 in Ghana, is that correct? I think your recollection is correct. I think you'll find a, a similar experience in many parts of Africa. So vaccines are expensive and also in the developing world pretty complicated. When I was in Ghana, I, I learned that Gavi has set up these advanced market commitments to encourage drug companies to produce these vaccines for poorer countries. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, you know, I think the advanced market commitment um, that Gavi undertook is, is really represents at this point the sort of smartest or most effective way mm. that we've seen for using um, our money to incent industry to make the vaccines that developing countries want and need. So, Oren, is there, is there any money given up front to, to these uh, big pharmaceutical companies, or are we talking about a commitment to buy here? No, the companies have to invest their own money in the development of the vaccine, and the way that they get uh, funding is only if they're successful in development, the vaccine meets the preset requirements of the advanced market commitment and developing countries choose their vaccine. One of the very important things that the advanced market commitment did is it took the guesswork out of the vaccine manufacturing mm -hmm. because it specified exactly what we want, mm -hmm. right? We want a vaccine that has these serotypes in it. We want it to be in this kind of, you know, vile or presentation. Um, we want it at this price or lower, 
And by taking that guesswork out, it really reduced risk to industry, which um, is one of the things that typically they, they, they build into their prices. The subsidy, if you like, that, that Gavi's been able to pass on to, to drug companies has allowed, in the case of pneumococcal, to be marketed in, in Ghana at sort of a long-term price of, I think it's three, $3.50. $3.50 or less. And that's yeah. what a more, more than 90% reduction compared to the same vaccines in Europe and the U.S., Oh yeah, yeah. The, so the the same vaccine that we pay uh, about a hundred dollars for in the U.S. is is three fifty or less for uh, the the poorest countries. And just to be clear, um, what this means in practice is that for the first uh, is it the first million or so doses, the drug company will get an enhanced price on that reduced price. So instead of getting three dollars fifty, they'll get seven dollars something for the, the initial. That's right. That, that's right. So the subsidy makes it. Um, about $7 a dose, mm-hmm. and then they pledge to sell it for 350 or less in an amount that um, corresponds to the size of their subsidy. So, for example, we've now got more than 60 million doses a year of firmly pledged uh, vaccine capacity for, for children in poor countries. And um, uh, it's in fact, I think, the only example of a Gavi vaccine where we have a pledge for dedicated capacity that is exclusive for the children in Gavi countries. Mm-hmm. Oren, just finally, um, I wonder, this is slightly broader than vaccines here, whether it sort of frustrates you that environmental changes, which would prevent the spread of disease in, in the first place, such as better sanitation, more bed nets, more health clinics, develops at such a, such a much slower pace than, than vaccines. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that when we think about the kinds of things that are taking the lives of children, things like pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, we realize that, that vaccines are a part of the package of solutions that, that these children need and deserve. And so, um, for example, with pneumonia, uh, every, every November 12th, we, we celebrate World Pneumonia Day by highlighting the package of interventions that includes things like improved cook stoves and better access to antibiotics in the community, uh, raising breastfeeding levels and, and, and uh, related types of interventions, all of which together could help us prevent, you know, two-thirds to 90% of all the pneumonia deaths in the world. A feature that's gone up on bmj.com this week looks at the improvements made to U.S. healthcare and public health by Kenneth Kaiser. Over his career, he's been, amongst others, Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Director of the California Department of Health Services and also Founding President of the National Quality Forum. BMJ's web editor, David Payne, interviewed him for the feature and he joins me in the studio now to tell me a bit about the changes that Professor Kaiser made. So, hello, David. Hello, Harriet. We've got some clips of the interview you recorded for us. Um, and in the first couple of these, he's talking about his time in California and the public health improvements he saw whilst he was there. Could you tell us a bit about this famous anti-smoking campaign that he put together? Yes, um, Kenneth Kaiser was, uh, as you said, Harry, was uh, head of health for the state of California. And one of the things he did while he was there, this was in the 1990s, he launched a very aggressive multi-million pound uh, anti-smoking campaign, which is was very much a template, I think, for subsequent campaigns adopted by other states and in other parts of the world to clamp down on smoking. You know, it included some very 
very, very radical advertising, which shows a group of tobacco industry executives cynically talking about the need to recruit new smokers because so many of them were dying every day and people were giving up. And there was one famous clip that I looked at uh, when I was researching the feature um, from 1990 on NBC's Today Show, where he clashed with the Tobacco Institute Vice President Brennan Dawson. She accused him of negative campaigning and said it would never wash. Uh, and I think, obviously, with hindsight, it was hugely successful. And there was a t 2010 paper in a BMJ sister journal, Tobacco control which compared the um, you know the cancer mortality in California and the rest of the US from 1979 to 2005 and the campaign was found to have had a real impact if you look at the smoking adult smoking rates in California you know they dropped by 41 percent um, to 13 13.3 percent of the adult population and are now down to 11.9 percent over 20 years so it was a very successful campaign sure so he's really been vindicated by those results then yes yeah and I think uh, as he said in the clip you know he was very he was in fear of his job when the ads first launched because it was sort of you know no one had ever gone there before. Let's listen to this clip then. I actually have a tape of some of those those advertisements and, and people still are amazed that the government would put stuff out like that. Yes. And, and you know, everyone was convinced by the way when those aired uh, that I would be immediately fired because they aired in Los Angeles. We, we launched it from Los Angeles. And, yes. And everyone was uh, assuming that as soon as I got back to Sacramento the governor would fire me uh, because they were so out of line with, you know, as a conservative Republican governor. But, yeah, he didn't. The other big thing I think that Kenneth did during his time there, which he talks about in, in the subsequent clip, is, you know, obviously AIDS was the first then emerging um, in California. And, uh, you know, the, the, the state again was very pioneering in needle exchange programs and, and things like that, which again, as he says, that some stages made him in fear of his job. And, uh, but obviously were a template again for other public health campaigns around the country. Sure, well here's what he had to say about the AIDS programmes and reforms that he put in place. Things like alternative test sites, you know, we pioneered in, in California and then, you know, New York took the uh, opposite view, uh, but, you know, within five or six years they were adopting alternative test sites to, mm. you know, to keep the blood supply. The approaches uh, that we took for, you know, education, for needle exchange and, mm. and uh, bleach and, and other sorts of things, again, were, were very controversial. The, the governor had a hard time with some of them, and he took positions contrary to on a number of occasions, so that, you know, created interesting dynamics. But yes. uh, I think overall California's approach to AIDS, uh, you know, remains uh, viewed as you know, leading the nation. So after his time um, in the California Department of Health Services, he moved on to the Department of Veterans Affairs, where he did an awful lot of work in, in patient safety. Could you just tell us a bit about what that is? Yes, he was invited in 1994 by President Clinton. Obviously, the work he'd done at the state level in California very much prepared him for you know a more federal nationwide job. He was um, recruited to uh, head up the Veterans Health Administration, which um, you know was set up in 1946 to provide treatment for veterans with combat-related injuries and now their families. And they're the, the largest provider of healthcare in the U.S. and they've got hundreds of hospitals clinics and he had to lead a reconfiguration program there of services which he did very aggressively and uh, it meant closing down hospitals and moving to you know more community-based settings but he did have this focus on patient safety which I think makes him very much in demand now again across the world for uh, quality and safety in healthcare. and as he says in the clip you know there was one occasion where he commissioned a report on patient safety and errors which he was warned would be political suicide and uh, you know thanks to I think the fact that uh, Kenneth is very good at playing the media uh, and had a very strong rapport with the 
the uh, Washington correspondent of the New York Times, ended up in a very on a very positive note, and uh, it really demonstrated actually encouraging clinicians to, to share when things go wrong and to learn from those errors uh, can actually have beneficial results. Yes, yeah, so again here he's put forward some controversial ideas and reforms, so let's have a listen to what he said about the reaction. We, when we launched our patient safety program in the VA, we were encouraging people to report errors. Mm. And we laid out a strategy for where we wanted to go. And, and this was in 1997. Uh, you know, the Institute of Medicine was still more than two years away from laying in, so it was somewhat virgin territory. Uh, but I went to the, the secretary, who was uh, my boss, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and I said, this is what I want to do. And, you know, he was really quiet and, and said, you know, I, I, I understand where you want to go. And, and his wife was a nurse. And, and he said, you know, I hear about some of this stuff from, from my wife. So, I, you know, it's, it's, I believe, you know, in what you're doing. But this is political suicide. <laughs> yes. and, and that you have to understand that if you move forward, uh, you'll be the first casualty. Uh, you know, things don't go well. We did do a report on our errors and collected 19 months worth of data which showed that there were uh, about 3,000 errors uh, in the system and then 700 preventable deaths over that 19-month period. And we put it in a report and sent it to Congress. Uh, it was an unsolicited report. We didn't have to do it, but I said, you know, we, we said we were going to do this. Uh, here's the data. To my somewhat amazement, nothing happened. <laughs> one week, two weeks, one month. Six months later, Robert Pear called me. I don't know if you know Robert Pear from the New York Times. Uh, no, no, okay. okay you know, he's, he basically only writes for page one. And, right. and uh, he called me uh, Friday at about 5.30, 6 o'clock at night and said, you know, I, I, I heard about this report. Uh, does it really exist? And I said, sure. I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to get a copy. I, I assume I'll have to go through all the usual, you know, freedom of information requests. And I said, nah, you, know, you want a copy? I'll give it to you. And he said, well, when can I get it? And you know, when do you want it? Well, now. I said, well, I don't have a copy with me, but, uh, and I actually didn't have one in the office. I said, I'll, I'll go home. I'll, I'll go to Kinko's. I lived on Capitol Hill there. And, uh, I'll make a copy and come by my house uh, at 9 o'clock, and I'll give it to you. I gave it to him, and I said, but, you know, I'll, I'll give it to you, but we would need to talk about it and, and put it in some context. So we talked for about two hours. Well, not surprising, Monday morning, you know, New York Times, above the fold, page one, banner headline, you know. <laughs> Although the, the key point that I, I wanted to make and which he got was that this is what was happening in hospitals every day, uh, everywhere uh, around the country, and the difference was the VA was doing something about it. Those are just some tasters of everything that you uh, managed to talk to him about, David, and, and got into the feature. To find out a bit more about his career, listeners, please do go and look on the article online. That's everything for this edition. Next week, we look at a paper which has analysed the effectiveness of memory clinics in tackling dementia. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.